So on Thursday night, the DTS gathered for our last gathering of the semester, and the whole semester was oriented around listening prayer. And we gathered together and filled the whiteboard with things that we felt God has been saying to us recently in this season. And then we spent some listening prayer time for Gateway trying to open our hearts to say, okay, Father, what are you saying to us as a congregation? A few weeks back, Stan got a word, an, an image about what, I'm, what I titled Break Up the Fallow Ground. I don't know if you're familiar with Hosea 10, 12, but. So it was funny because a couple of weeks ago, I was up here praying and it was funny because I seen, I seen dirt. I seen like basically dust on the ground and dirt. And I seen people digging into the dirt. And I felt like the Lord said to me that he was breaking up the fallow ground. So basically the next, um, on Thursday, like the Lord, because I didn't know kind of what it all meant on Wednesday. So the Lord kind of breathed on it Thursday. And it's like, so we were in class and I was like, the Lord showed me he's breaking up the fallow ground for, you know, our hearts to be opened and healed and all that nature. So, and um, that's what, that's what he showed me, so. So here's that verse. Listen to the word of the Lord. Sow for yourselves righteousness and reap the fruit of unfailing love. Break up your unplowed ground for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. Does that not feel like on the money? Break up your unplowed ground. Your, our hearts have gotten hardened by stuff that's happened and they're no longer capable of receiving the rain or the seed like they ought. And so it's time to break them up, make them ready again to receive both the seed and the rain. Urgh, that's just good stuff. Okay, so I had a dream. I was at a concert. It was an open and air concert, but not at Agape Farms. I was excited about seeing the group. Then I noticed the crowd. There was maybe 100 people there. I was standing close by the director of Creation Concerts. I said that I was sorry there weren't more people there. I mentioned he must be disappointed. I knew they needed the money to keep running. He replied, it's not about the money. It's about the message. I said, yeah, I know, but I grieve so much for you and the loss of numbers. He said, wow. Are you carrying that burden for the farm and your church? I answered, yes, I am. I know it's not the numbers, but when the seats are empty, we're failing. He pulled me aside and said, we need to pray this burden off of you. You cannot operate like this. He proceeded to pray that this burden would be lifted and that I would see that God got this. It's not about the numbers. It's about doing God's will. It's about planting seeds. It's about the one that's life has changed. He asked God to give me excitement again. He asked God to allow my light to grow. It's in that light that others see Christ. The dream that then repeats, but this time it's a very small venue. Yet there's a sizable stage. In comes the speaker. The people stand and clap for, clap for him. And then I notice the small size of the crowd. The speaker goes on to give a very inspired sermon. 
I could see the Holy Spirit was on him. At the end, he looked right at me. He said, it's not about filling the venue. The ones that needed to hear were here. You need not worry about the numbers. This burden needs to come off of you. It's blocking your message. That's encouraging to me. Mike Biggs ain't here, but I think I can report that one of the things Mike uh, heard the Lord say for Gateway just, was it last week? On Tuesday. Okay, so in a breakfast conversation, Mike said, An army base, not Seaford, Bridgeville, and the surrounding areas don't need another church. There's plenty of churches. We need an army base where people are trained up and sent out to front lines. It's a good word. So the last month and a half, I think it's a month and a half, God's given me three paintings, um, and I've been working on them at the same time, which is probably why they're not done yet. Um, well, that, and we have uh, another kid living with us, and that, Takes my time. But uh, the first painting that he gave me was, um, I started painting it, and he had told me to paint a graveyard. So I started painting a graveyard, and I'm in the middle of painting the graveyard, and everybody, well, people are watching me paint this graveyard. And I'm like, God, why am I painting this graveyard? I had no clue. Um, so I just kept painting it, and then he, it was half empty. The painting was half empty, and I said, well, what am I supposed to paint there? And he said, paint a rose garden. So I painted a, I filled the space with roses, and then he had me, he asked, he told me to bring the roses into the, the graveyard, and I had no clue what it meant. I just did it. I did what he asked, and, um, and I'm, as I'm talking to him and talking to him and looking at the painting, and I'm like, well, why, what's this about? And he said, uh, we're not dead anymore, and it's time to live. I think there's more there, but I haven't gotten there yet. Um, the other one was he had me paint a tree, and I saw this one really clearly. He said, paint a tree, and all the branches that are on the tree need to be grafted into the tree. And there's a few branches that are be cut off. And each branch that's grafted in will bear a different fruit. But he says, yes, there's some that are cut off. But that leaves room for more to be grafted back in. And I'm still working on that one, <laughs> painting it. Um, the third. And some of the branches are, are not yet bearing fruit, but it's coming. Oh, yes, that's right. Thank you. There are a few branches that are not bearing fruit yet, but they're still grafted in. Um, yeah. Um, the third one I, he told me to paint, and this one wasn't just for Gateway, but it, um, it's for Gateway and for other parts of my life. Um, it was a brick wall that's been falling down and tearing down. Um, it's coming down, and in the brick wall, where the cracks are and the crevices, are daisies popping up. Um, daisies happen to be my favorite flower, so I knew that they meant uh, pureness and innocence. And he told me, like, you know, what it meant before, but as I'm still painting it, he says, also for a gateway, you know, things are going to be torn down, but there's going to be pureness that comes from it. Those are the three paintings. <laughs> On February 4, I had an extremely vivid dream. I dreamt I was preaching in a large venue and it was somehow Gateway, but it didn't look like Gateway. And during the preaching I was going on and on, I was feeling the spirit until all at once the sound dropped out. I don't know if it was a power surge or if the wireless mic failed, something happened, it was a technical difficulty. 
And so I stopped preaching and took a minute to try to get the mic settled and continue on as before. But when I finally got back up to preach in my dream, 80% of the people had simply left as though they had been enduring up till that moment and finally saw their moment of escape. And I felt a flash of discouragement, but I also felt almost a resilient anger. You know, like this, the Lord is on this. I have to press on. And so I began to preach even more feverishly the message I had been preaching. And I remember in the dream yelling over and over, my house shall be called a house of prayer over and over. My house shall be called a house of prayer over and over and over. And as I was saying this, it felt like it was touch. It was from my deep. It was like touching people's deep. And suddenly, without any altar call, everyone rushed this, the, the front to just go into seeking God. It was like, enough of you. We're Get out of the way, boy. We're going to seek Jesus. Sermon over. And the room, which had felt so empty just a few moments earlier, it, it, it didn't matter because it was full. It was full of God, and it was full of the noise of people seeking God. And I think in the dream, I said, all right, guys, I'm going to just lead us in prayer. And I got a few words out before I just ended up on the ground. You know what I mean? Just, just moaning and, and, and the deep travail. Uh, giving birth. <laughs> So I, I laid on the ground asking God to do a whole bunch of stuff that I've been asking him to do for about 20 years now. And I look over beside me, and there's this uh, butch, stocky, short-haired female pastor who I could tell had a sweet and conscientious concern for people and how they're doing. And she was, she was being counseled by an older, more mature pastor who was calm and very kind. And the younger pastor was saying that she was afraid of the wild and unpredictable activities of the spirit, if she were to really surrender to God, she's just not sure how the, how the church would handle what God might do. And so there she was, afraid of what might happen if she surrendered to God, but completely convinced this is really him. And so here we go. I'm, and, and that older pastor was not really telling her what to do as much as helping her have the comfort and assurance for what she was about to do. And I woke up wondering what each of the various parts of the dream meant, but I also woke up still praying. I woke up in the spirit, woke up with my stomach muscles tight, woke up with fists praying, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And I collected myself. I I feel like um, those are real prayers that God's going to honor as though I prayed them while awake. Surely, Joseph, if he can encounter an angel in a dream and it's real, just as real as if the angel had showed up in in the flesh, does that make sense? If it's God, does it really matter if it was a dream or a vision or a voice or a physical angel? No, if it's God, it's God. It's true. And I, it's funny, I actually kind of know what I was preaching in the dream. I'll tell you what I was preaching in the dream. My... My dream was about a lifestyle of ceaseless, unbroken communion. Like a people who take pray without ceasing as a real thing. Like, wow, it's not throwaway words. 
On the personal, it means each of us is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And in the corporate, it means when we gather, we're here to host God. That's all we are primarily about. And I think the dream may have come as an expression of a problem I was working on in my heart, trying to understand and solve. How many of you know that sometimes your dreams are the place where you work out things you've been thinking about? And even if they're, they could be good things you've been working out, and sometimes it's anxieties you've been working out. In my dream, I feel like I was working out something I've noticed, which is the tension in the churches in America between what the church seems to be about in America and what the kingdom is always about everywhere. Sometimes I wonder if, like, in the American church, um, we've replaced spirituality with activity. And um, we kind of almost create a Jesus franchise, if that makes any sense. Sometimes I feel like it's almost like a Tower of Babel, where if the church is successful and we're a part of it, then we feel successful by virtue of belonging to it. But if the church is not visibly successful and impressive, and we feel like failures for being a part of it, it's a Tower of Babel. We tack Bible verses onto it to pretend it's God, but it's actually just human stuff. And Genesis 12, see that's Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Genesis 12 is a seeming ridiculous, impossible God, invisible God of an impossible promise of a man who makes improbable choices to leave everything he knows behind and because he heard a voice. <laughs> to get a promise that he's going to have a great nation come from him and he doesn't even have a kid yet. And he doesn't get the kid till right at the end and as soon as he gets it, he's told to go sacrifice it. It's very illogical. It's not how you would think it's going to go. But I feel like in the kingdom, our goal is Christ. Not to draw identity from church, but to draw identity from Christ. When we draw identity from church, I call that churchianity, where I'm only doing as good as church is going. It's very common. I call it churchianity, and I think we need to be saved from it. A church will draw hungry souls if the core group will simply go after God and only God with sincerity because God finds that hunger irresistible and he shows up. And when he shows up, he will draw hungry people to the environment that hosts his presence. So too often, I think we pursue relationship with God as one of the things we do instead of the one thing we do in everything we do. And if Jesus is the head of the body and we're the body, then the way to live out our reality is each one of us intimate with him. And if that's true, then if, then if we abide in him, we can trust him to build his church his way. We're told we don't build the church. We can plant, we can, we can pray, we can teach, but it's only God that gives the increase. We can water we can sow, we can harvest, but it's only God that changes hearts and lives. It's only the Holy Spirit taking the simple truth that you simply gave a testimony. You simply did a little thing and the Holy Spirit did all the heavy thing. There's more here. I don't want to get into it too much. It's too long, but um, to obey is better than sacrifice. If we live in obedience to God's voice, then he's going to love our singing. Uh, if we don't live in obedience to God's voice, then we might love our singing. <laughs> yes. 
But to him, it'll be like mm, trapped in a car full of farts with the windows up, you know. You know, just a vivid image for the kids there. So I woke up and I was still praying and the intensity of all that was on me and I was getting out of bed and as I was getting out of bed, I was remembering a word, a message someone had, had shared with me. They said, Tim, you're a mystic, you're a writer and you're a builder. And I said, God, if I'm a builder, what am I building? And instantly he said, a house of prayer. I've been drawn frequently to the verse, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek their, my face and turn from their wicked ways. Um, I will come and heal their land. Um, and prior to the reconciliation team coming, I really felt the need to pray for all of us that we would come with repentance and humility and that I would come with repentance and humility. Where are the pieces that I've not um, yeah, that I've not been completely obedient to seeking God that would have helped bring health in relationships. And then I asked God a little bit more about what that meant and um, he reminded me that it was the pure in heart who would see God in the Beatitudes. And that when we repent and when we come to a place of humility, our hearts are purified. And that's when we can see God more clearly. And everything um, that's been done to offend us falls away and we see just just him we see him clearly we see clearly what he's doing in our family in our church family in our land okay the other night I had a positive dream for me that's significant because the previous six weeks all my dreams were that I or people close to me were under attack by what I can only describe as evil beings. In my dream, I was made aware of an older gentleman in the community that needed help. His windows needed cleaned, his patio needed sprucing up, porch needed repair, etc. I was part of a group from our church that went to try to fill this need. Here's the tricky part. I didn't know any of the men that went along. All of them were new to our church. After working a while, a van stopped in the driveway. He was from the neighborhood we were in. He thanked us so much for helping his friend. Then he said he wanted to bless our church, bless our church with a gift. I never saw the gift. The gift wasn't important. What was important was the part that happened next. I suggested we pray, to get, pray together and thank God for this gift. We corporately stopped our work and prayed. The Holy, the Holy Spirit fell on this group of men. We fell to our knees in prayer and thankfulness. There are several things I see here in the dream. First, 
that Gateway has a blessed future with new people and new funds. Second, that the Holy Spirit is coming to wake us up. Awake, O sleeper. I think we need to have have the expectancy that as a congregation, we will move forward. We need to expect Jesus will show up every time we ask him. We need to ask him to wake us up and be with us and lead us. We also need to not put limits on where he leads us. Uh, This week I got, um, it's funny because I was sitting at home and I got the number, I picked up my phone, it was 555. And so I'm like, I'm like, okay, that's not just a coincidence because I've had that happen before with the, with the, with the 1111 like Tim was talking about this morning. So I'm like, just, just out of random, I'm like, you know, Google it and say, okay, what's, you know, what's 555? You know, what's the number five mean? And it's grace, favor, and kindness um, is what it represents. And so, um, so not only did I do that, so I kind of went on my own little journey and um, I read every scripture um, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, Revelation that from chapter 5 and verse 5. And basically, it had everything to do with what we've been going through. And in Revelation 5, 5, 5 which I don't have. Um, yeah, can you read that for me, Tim? Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So, so you know, so, so I just felt like the Lord said, you know, that grace, favor, and kindness is over our church. One thing is spiritual warfare. We've been talking a lot about how in the past we've known something was going on. And it's like theoretically there's a spiritual realm. But in real life, we, I think most of us have been going how does this work? How do you navigate this thing? Because one, you know, one problem is, Paul says we are not unaware of the, of the enemy's schemes among us, right? What if we are unaware? It's really difficult to, to not keep falling into the same trap if you are unaware of, of, of that there is a trap. James 4 kind of gives a different take on spiritual warfare. Sometimes I think our vision of spiritual warfare is yelling at the devil and throwing a lot of water on things and anointing oil and that kind of stuff. But James's vision, he says that the problem that creates conflicts among us is selfishness. And the answer is uh, to stop being worldly and humble ourselves under Jesus. That to submit to God because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, so humility wins. And as we submit to God, as we're under his authority, his authority then fights the devil for us. Did you catch it? As we, it says, submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. But let's say we wouldn't submit to God, but we would just resist the devil. He's not fleeing. So the real deep spiritual warfare is humility and repentance and submission to God Humble yourself. Okay. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands. Purify your hearts, uh, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail and change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. I think we've all heard the adage that most of us don't change until the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. And that's kind of what James is saying. He's like, when, you get, when it gets tough enough that you get serious enough to humble yourself before the Lord, your answer will come. 
That would be that James 4 piece, humility, submission to God, and repentance. And then, and then in terms of the community, slandering each other is, is what it looks like when we're not walking in that. When we slander each other, instead of covering each other's sin in public while confronting each other's sin in private, like the Bible says, in, in slandering each other, we're actually not confronting each other's sin in private. We're, we're exposing it in public. And that's a problem. Uh, I have a couple more points here. It, it, Psalm 133 says, there's a place where God commands his blessing to dwell. And what is that place, you guys? Anybody know it just from memory? Psalm 133. How blessed it is when what? Brothers dwell in unity, and there the Lord commands his blessing. And the word blessed means happy. How happy it is when Christian folk actually have, have unified hearts. And that's the place where God makes his presence dwell. And if you look in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus constantly talks to the churches about a lampstand. And he tells the one church, the first one, I think, uh, the, the church in Ephesus, that if they don't repent, he's going to come and take away their lampstand. What would that mean? That would mean you would cease to be a church. You might still be a social club, but you'd be devoid of his presence in the center of the community. That's what makes a church a church. I heard Jimmy Evans say that you can be in a populated city center with huge amounts of people around you, but you can't get a church going if you don't have a lampstand. And you could be out in the middle of nowhere in the country with low population and seemingly no opportunity to have a big church, and yet people come for miles to be where the, where the presence is because you got a lampstand. So guys, I feel like this is the critical issue of the season we're in, is for us to draw and have humility and, and repentance and unity at the, at the core and the center of our relationships and from, a, from an authentic heart, seek reconciliation for those who are no longer in these four walls because our hearts matter more than anything else. And there's a certain kind of heart that God finds irresistible. I feel like I'm preaching now and I didn't mean to. Final one would be Ezekiel 34.4 where God's mad at the shepherds and I didn't take it as a word of rebuke as much as I took it as a word of if you can figure out what the teacher is going to be testing on the test, then you also know how to win. Right? Have you ever had a, a teacher where... Questions showed up on the test that were not in the lectures, and that ain't right. And here, it's like Jesus saying to us, this is what I'm going to be looking for. And this is his list. Six things. Strengthen the weak, heal the sick, bind up the injured, bring back the strays, search for the lost, and rule them with gentleness and kindness. Can you imagine if that was the heart that's beating in every single one of us? Strengthen the weak, heal the sick, bind up the injured, Search for the lost. I'm sorry, bring back the strays. That's a big one. Search for the lost and rule with gentleness and kindness. What was the scripture in Ezekiel? Ezekiel 34.4. I took it as like an inspiration of taking the, taking the things that he's looking for and saying, let's turn those into intentional goals and let's pursue those. So the scriptures I've mentioned here is James 4 on humility, Psalm 133 in Revelation chapter 2 on the relationship between unity and his presence, and then Ezekiel 34.4 as what are Jesus' heart goals? One night, probably about six months ago, during DTS prayer time, I had a vision. Jesus was leaning down from heaven and was pouring droplets of water into a lake. It was shown to me that the lake was gateway. The droplets landed in the center, and the ripples rolled all the way to the shore. What this meant to me is that the more gateway is Jesus to the communities around us, the ripple effect will touch everyone around us. This past week, um, during prayer time, 
I was given what some people call a poem, but most of us call prose. It's not about the one. It's not about me. It is about Jesus. We need to be looking for Jesus, talking to Jesus, living for Jesus, emulating Jesus, sharing Jesus, being Jesus, leading others to be Jesus because they got to know Jesus. We started prayer on Thursday, and, um, and uh, I was sitting right over there, and basically the Lord said, He's like, I want you to get comfortable like you're, you're, in, you're in, in your own home. So I was like, okay. So I, so I took off my, my, my shoes and I just relaxed. So, so while I was relaxing, I kept getting the word faith like a child, faith like a child. I kept, I kept hearing that over and over. And then I seen a bunch of kids on a playground just playing, you know, swinging on swings, on seesaws, and basically having no fear and that, you know, that we need, you know, we need to have faith like a child. And basically that the Lord was restoring my faith like a child as he was showing me this. And, and I just kept seeing how, how kids were playing around and, and they were just, they were having fun. And, and you know, and, and just the word kept coming to me over and over, have faith like a child, faith like a child, faith like a child, you know. And then I had a picture of children standing up here. And the Lord said, that's the picture that we need, we need to look at them and we need to see how basically um, children act because they're, they're, a lot of children are not afraid of very much. And that's because they have, you know, they have faith like a child, you know, so, so, so um, you know, and children standing up here and we need to look at our own children. You know, I don't have children, but, but y'all do. And and sometimes the reason they do the things they do, because guess what? They're not afraid. They don't have fear. They have faith. When Stan shared that, I, I told a story about Gabe being up on the roof years ago, running around, flipping around, doing who knows what up on the roof. And the next door neighbor, uh, Mr. Barry, who's in heaven now, saw it and got very anxious. And apparently he was yelling at him to get down and Gabe didn't hear because he's a kid. And then we sent, can I tell this story, Gabe? Sent uh, Gabe across the road with a loaf of bread for Mr. Barry and looked like something was going on over there. And I didn't know what was going on. He's waving his arm and all red face. And I said, I think he's getting yelled at. And Carrie ran across the road and pulled Gabe out of the interaction. It really hurt Gabe's heart. I mean, he just went over to do a nice thing and got yelled at, reamed out. Mr. Barry had a historic temper. And think about that. Gabe, he's a little kid, right? He has, he's like a ninja. Have you ever seen him on a trampoline? It's crazy. He can do double flips and crazy stuff and sideways ninja stuff. There ain't no danger of him falling off a roof. Plus, if he does, he's going to be all right. He might break a leg, but he's not going to die. You know what I mean? There's more likely that I'm going to be up there trying to clean a gutter and my pants rip and fall off forward into the bush, and then you guys find me upside down or something like that. But it's not likely he's going to fall off. We're covered in leaves and gutter stuff. But Mr. Barry, first off, his fear was irrational because Gabe's way safe up there compared to me. And secondly... His fear of Gabe getting hurt made him want to control Gabe. When Gabe would not, didn't hear him, he assumed it was disrespect, and he proceeded to hurt Gabe far worse than a broken leg. Think about that with me for a second. So on Thursday night, and we were, we were asked to, you know, 
pray and hear from God. And I saw two things, a clock ticking very loudly, like really loud. And I saw the sun and moon passing over a mountain really fast. And the Bible verse came to me, Ecclesiastes, I always say that wrong. Three, one. For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven. And I asked him what he, what he was meaning by all this. And he said, it is time to take off the funeral clothes and put on the wedding dress. It's time to put down the sword and pick up the word. It's time to wake up and to walk with me in the cool of the day. It's time to grow up and raise up others. That one hit me hard. <laughs> um, it's time to fast and be hungry. And uh, this morning I was praying up here with a pre-service prayer, and hungry came to my mind. Um, and I was praying for the hunger at Gateway. And God said he doesn't want hunger. He wants starvation. Hungry, you go and get a snack. Starvation, you need a lot more, and he wants us to starve for him. So in October, I was in a season of, um, of intense prayer. Um, October 16th, I was writing the date, and for some reason I went, oh my goodness, that was my due date. That was my due date when I was due with Wayne. And then I went overdue with him two weeks and had a very um, awful birth experience um, in which I went for emergency C-section. So during the time that I was interceding from the day Wayne was overdue onto his birthday, um, I had a super intense dream in which I had given birth to a boy very effortlessly, um, very effortlessly. I realized I was in labor. I went into position. I saw the baby's head crown. I caught the baby and admired the beauty of the baby with such a deep sense of awe and then handed the baby off to someone to have the cord cut. And I don't generally have vivid dreams like Tim. He dreams all the time. <laughs> Tim Fried. I have had very few dreams that have been, I've, this is by far the most vivid dream I've ever had. And so I knew what it meant for me personally. And then on Thursday, when we went into listening prayer time, I went and sat in the back, and God showed me that the dream. He reminded me of the dream, and then he reminded me of, he showed me that the dream had more to do with just, than with just me, that it also had to do with new things that God's birthing here at Gateway. He showed me that rebirth, when we partner with him, can be effortless and without striving. And that gentle submission to the pains of labor, being able to partner in perfect rhythm 
with our Father in pain. Um, that when we partner with him, he moves and we move in complete oneness with him. We breathe in and we breathe, we breathe him in and we breathe him out. In labor, breathing is an essential part of the whole rhythm that the body and the contractions are that togetherness, that rhythm. So we're supposed to be moving in oneness with our Heavenly Father and breathing him in, breathing him out. And, and then um, there'll be a crowning. And when we press in as the baby's head crowns and we press into the pain without giving up, then the baby's birthed. And what a thing of beauty that is. Like, I, in my dream, was in such awe of the perfection of what I had birthed, the beauty uh, of the baby. It brings us to a place of complete awe and wonder. Um, I have yet to figure out what the, what, how um, the cutting of the cord might mean um, for us at Gateway, but yeah, the awe and wonder, the working in complete unity in our pain to bring about the birth that he wants of something, something new that he's birthing. So um, I've been struggling with God about um, the fact that people close to me have been confused and believed lies and lost their alignment with the Father. I felt like I needed greater discernment so that I could recognize the devil's schemes, so that I could see in my sister and speak to help to redirect that sister before she falls so far into lies that she can't hear me anymore. And in my, our listening time here on Thursday, he said that we'll know the devil's schemes by knowing the original. It's not the devil's schemes I need to study. It's walking in complete unity with the Father. The closer I walk to him, the more quickly I can recognize something that doesn't look or smell or taste or feel right. When we are close to Jesus, we quickly recognize. And then the verse came, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste his goodness. So a few years back, I was at these revival meetings, and this guy was talking about how, he, how the Lord will indicate to him what he's supposed to pray for in terms of healing prayers for people by having him have sympathetic pain in that part of his body. And uh, <laughs> he said, uh, so one night my ovaries started hurting. <laughs> I was like, hey, wait a minute. That ain't true. I have, though, seen what it's like for Carrie to, to have natural birth where she labors at home. I remember years ago, I was having breakfast with Raphael Yutzi. Show of hands, who remembers Raph Yutzi? And he was wearing his Beatles hat, I think, if I remember correctly. 
we're having breakfast somewhere, maybe out, I don't know, Milford or something. And, and he says, so how's your wife? I said, she's in labor. And he's like, what is wrong with you? Get home. And I said, oh, no, it'll be, it'll be we're all right. I was like, she, she's like, oh, I'll be in labor for at least a day. And we, we learned that. That's one of the things we learned is like, don't just rush off to the hospital because then they'll put you in straps, make you lie down on your back in weird positions and put drugs in you that make your con contractions all messed up. You got to just let your body do its thing. Your body knows more than the doctors know. Shh, don't tell them, don't tell them I said that. But I love that word about working, working with the contractions. Uh, it's painful, but it's more painful when you fight against it and when you try to force it and when you try to make it happen. You know, a lot of times in life it works like that. When we try to make it happen on our schedule and then we make a lot of bigger problems that way. And then the other thing was the studying the authentic. Man, that is such a good word. I doubt if Tim Freed has ever picked up the phone and had somebody else claiming to be Gail fool him. You know why? They have logged so many hours of conversation. Now, if he spent all his time studying Gail impersonators, maybe. Maybe he could actually be deceived about that. Do you track with what I'm saying? It's crazy. Have you ever noticed this? The parts of the body of Christ that say that they're the ones who have the discernment, and they have whole websites devoted to showing how everyone from Billy Graham to Beth Moore to everyone is a heretic and an, an evil. Those people have literally the least amount of discernment in the body of Christ. Because they're focused so much on exposing error, they're not seeing the fruit and character and nature of Jesus. That is what Jesus said we're supposed to look for. He said, by your fruit, you know them. So yeah, stop wasting your time trying to find heresy and error under every bush and get to know Jesus and it'll become pretty obvious pretty quickly. And it'll even become pretty obvious pretty quickly when you're in trouble. Say, ooh, am I using Christian wiggle words? So instead of saying that I have unforgiveness towards so-and-so, I say that I'm hurting so instead of saying that I'm gossiping, I say that I'm, uh, I'm just trying to warn people. So instead of saying that, uh, oh boy, right, am I meddling? Instead of saying that I'm stuck in anxiety and unbelief, I say that I'm concerned. <laughs> concerned. I got a pamphlet in the mail. You guys can pretty well stand. Linda can come up. I got a pamphlet in the mail from a group that's calling, called itself the Fellowship of Concerned Mennonites. That's, their, that's the name of their ministry. I was like, well, yeah, I'm going to throw that in the trash immediately. <laughs> because anyone who's gathered around what they're against isn't going to be bearing good fruit. All righty. And two announcements. Next week, we're going to take up probably some sort of vote on the recommendations that the overseers made when they were here. So that's next week. Tomorrow night, Carl is an elder, Rusty is an elder, and I'm an elder. We're having an elders meeting, so please pray for us, all right?